There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On this edition of Joyce Kaufman's No Restraint Podcast, I think I'm going medical. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to talk about all the misinformation that's been out there. And it's not misinformation by legitimate scientists and doctors. It's misinformation by organizations that cloak themselves under government titles or even world government titles. I want to talk about it because nobody else seems to want to talk about it. First and foremost, Everybody's been conscious of the fact that the Biden administration has been negotiating a deal to give the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, authority over our pandemic policies. This new international health accord, actually, they found a way to avoid Senate approval. They're preparing to sign up the United States to a legally binding accord with the WHO that would give the UN subsidiary based in Geneva the authority to dictate what America does, our policies during a pandemic. At times like this, you can't tell me you don't miss Donald Trump. Despite widespread criticism of the WHO's response to the COVID pandemic, our Health and Human Services uh, Secretary, yeah, you know who I'm talking about, Xavier Bissara, Oh, you didn't know who I was talking about? That's probably because he keeps a really low-key profile since he hasn't done anything. Anyway, he joined with the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom, I can't pronounce his last name, it's something like Jedebrosiasis, in September of last year to announce the U.S. WHO Strategic Dialogue. And they, they developed this like platform to maximize this longstanding U.S. government relationship with the WHO and to protect and to promote the health of all people around the globe, including the American people. Well, not for nothing. While I really like lots of people all around the globe, have some friends in New Zealand and South America, have friends in Europe, I really like the American people just a little bit more. And I'm more concerned with what kinds of policies affect us than what kinds of policies affect everybody else. Maybe it's just me. Call me selfish, but this is my country. So after all of the controversy surrounding the pandemic responses, we have now been told that they have had a discussion and they have spawned the zero draft, which is basically a PDF of a pandemic treaty that was published on the first day of February, which now seeks ratification by all 194 
WHO member states. A meeting of their intergovernmental negotiating body, even the name of that is frightening, is scheduled for today, for February 27th, if you're listening to this at another time, to work out the final terms, which, of course, then all the members will sign. It's written under the banner of the World Together Equitably. It actually grants the WHO the power to declare and manage a global pandemic emergency. And once a health emergency is declared, everybody who signed this document, including us, are going to have to submit to the authority of the WHO regarding treatments, regarding lockdowns, regarding vaccine mandates, regarding global supply chains, and also monitoring and surveillance of our population. They want to see a centralized vaccine and medication-based response and a very restrictive response in terms of controlling populations, according to a former WHO staffer who specialized in epidemic policy. They get to decide what is a health emergency, and they're putting in place a surveillance mechanism that will ensure that there are potential emergencies to declare. The WHO pandemic treaty is part of this sort of two-track effort that's coinciding with an initiative by the World Health Assembly, that's the WHA, to create new global pandemic regulations that would also supersede the laws of member states. The WHA is the rulemaking body of the WHO, which is comprised of representatives from all the member states. Both initiatives are fatally dangerous. Either one or both would set up a worldwide medical police state under the control of WHO, and in particular, under Director General Tedros. If either one of or both of these go through, Tedros or his successor will be the physician uh, who gets to make all the rules, even though he's not a physician. Other physicians have said, if these rules go through as currently drafted, I, as a doctor, will be told that I'm allowed to give a patient and what I'm not allowed to give a patient because the WHO has now declared a public health emergency. So they can tell you you're getting remdesivir, but you can't have hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. What they're also saying is they believe in equity, which means everybody in the world has to get vaccinated whether or not they need it, whether or not they're already immune. And regarding medical treatments, the accord would actually require that member nations monitor and regulate against substandard and falsified pandemic-related products. So if you base that on previous WHO and Biden administration policy, this would likely include forcing people to take newly developed vaccines while preventing doctors from prescribing non-vaccine treatments or medicines. A key question surrounding this is whether the Biden administration can actually bind us to treaties and agreements without the consent of the U.S. Senate, which is required under the Constitution. The Zero Draft concedes that, per international law, treaties between countries must be ratified by national legislatures, thus respecting the right of their citizens to consent. However, the draft also includes a clause that the accord will go into effect on a provisional basis as soon as it's signed by delegates to the WHO 
and therefore it's going to be legally binding on members without ever having been ratified by legislatures. Whoever drafted this clause knew as much about U.S. constitutional law and international law as I did and deliberately drafted it to circumvent the power of the Senate to give its advice and consent to treaties. This is crazy land. There are several U.S. Supreme Court decisions that may actually support the Biden administration in this. They include State of Missouri versus Holland, in which the Supreme Court ruled that treaties supersede state laws. There were some other decisions, like United States versus Belmont, ruling that executive agreements without Senate consent can be legally binding with the force of treaties. There are parallels between the WHO Pandemic Accord and a recent OECD Global Tax Agreement, which the Biden administration, of course, signed on to, but which Republicans say has no path forward to legislative approval. In the OECD agreement, there are punitive terms built in that allow foreign countries to punish American companies if the deal is not ratified by the United States. As with the OECD tax agreement, administration officials are attempting to appeal to international organizations to impose policies that have been rejected by America's voters. Under the U.S. Constitution, health care does not fall under the authority of the federal government. It is actually the domain of the states. The Biden administration found this to be a very unwelcome impediment to its attempts to impose these vaccine and mask mandates on Americans, as those of us living in Florida are grateful to report, because courts ruled that federal agencies did not have the authority to make our governor do what Joe Biden wanted him to. To circumvent that, they went to the WHO for either the regulations or the treaty to get around domestic opposition. According to the Zero Draft, signatories would agree to, quote, strengthen the capacity and performance of national regulatory authorities and increase the harmonization of regulatory requirements at the international and regional level. So this is basically a whole one world government, whole one society approach at the very, very highest level. It also says that this new accord is necessary because of the catastrophic failure of the international community in showing solidarity and equity in response to the coronavirus disease, the COVID-19 pandemic. A report from the WHO's Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response said that the WHO's performance as a toxic cocktail of bad decisions. Oh, boy. This is who we're handing our sovereignty over to. The WHO pandemic agreement calls for the member states to implement One Health surveillance. One Health is a concept that has been embraced by the UN. Well, that should tell you everything. Also by the CDC. That should confirm it. And by the World Bank. That should clinch it. The term originally meant a way of seeing human and animal health as linked, as they sometimes are so that you can improve human health by acting more broadly. It's become hijacked, and now it's being used to claim that all human activities and all issues within the biosphere that affect health are therefore within public health's remit. So public health can be deemed to include climate or racism or fisheries management, and it is being used to claim that carbon emissions are a health issue and therefore a health emergency. The WHO Zero Draft states 
that One Health Surveillance means leaving the definition to be worked out in future drafts. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. Signatories also agree to support the official narrative when it comes to information about a pandemic. Specifically, they say, they will conduct regular social listening and analysis to identify the prevalence and profiles of misinformation and design communications and messaging strategies for the public to counteract misinformation and disinformation and false news, therefore strengthening public trust. It will have the exact opposite effect. It actually diminishes any trust I once had and now no longer have in public health officials. And of course, this aligns with the efforts by the Biden administration to make sure that social media companies are aware of the latest narratives dangerous to public health and engage with them to better understand the enforcement of social media platform policies. Oh, man, here we go. The official narrative during the COVID-19 pandemic included support for lockdowns, school closures, and masking, all of which have since proven to be ineffective in stopping the spread of the virus and damaging to public health. Yeah, even this week, we saw something. The real science on masks came out on the free press, and it says, we now have the most authoritative estimate of the value provided by wearing masks during the pandemic. You want to know what it was? Approximately zero. Not approximately, exactly zero. The most rigorous and extensive review of the scientific literature concludes that neither surgical masks nor N95 masks have been shown to make a difference in reducing the spread of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses. This verdict really ought to be the death knell for mask mandates, but that would require the CDC and the rest of the public health establishment to forsake the so-called science. And unfortunately, these leaders and their acolytes in the media seem as determined as ever to ignore actual science. You know, before the pandemic, clinical trials repeatedly showed little or no benefit from wearing masks in preventing the spread of respiratory illnesses like the flu and colds. That was why in their pre-2020 plans for dealing with a viral pandemic, the WHO, the CDC, and other national public health agencies did not recommend masking the public. But once COVID-19 hit, magical thinking prevailed. Officials ignored all the previous findings and plans, instead touting crude, and easily debunked studies purporting to show that masks worked. The gold standard for medical evidence is randomized clinical trial, and the gold standard for analyzing this evidence is Cochrane, formerly the Cochrane Collaboration. They're the world's largest and most respected organization for evaluating health interventions. Funded in part by the NIH and other nations' health agencies, it's an international network of reviewers. It's based in London. It has partnerships with the WHO and Wikipedia, and medical journals have hailed it for being the best single resource for methodologic research and for being recognized worldwide as the highest standard in evidence-based healthcare. 
It has published a new Cochrane review of the literature on masks, including trials during the COVID-19 pandemic in hospitals and in community settings. The trials compared outcomes of wearing surgical masks wearing versus wearing no masks and also wearing surgical masks versus N95 masks. The review, which is conducted by a dozen researchers from six different countries, concludes, here, are you ready for this? That wearing any kind of face covering probably makes little or no difference in reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses. I'm not a physician, but I knew that. It may seem intuitive that masks must do something, but even if they do trap droplets from coughs or sneezes, which is the reason that surgeons and nurses wear masks, they still allow tiny viruses to spread by aerosol even when they're worn correctly. And it's really unrealistic to expect most people to do so. While a mask may keep out some pathogens, its inner surface can also trap concentrations of pathogens that are then breathed back into the lungs. Whatever theoretical benefits there might be, and that's all this was ever based on, clinical trials that benefits have turned out to be either illusory or offset by negative factors. Out at Oxford, Tom Jefferson, who is the lead author of the Cochrane Review, summed up the real science on masks. There is just no evidence that they make any difference, full stop. This lack of evidence would be enough to keep any new drug or medical treatment from even being approved, much less one whose purported benefits had not even been weighed against the harmful side effects. As the Cochrane reviewers disapprovingly note, few of the clinical trials of masks even bothered to collect data on the harmful effects on subjects. Most public health officials and journalists have also ignored the downsides too, and social media platforms have actually censored evidence of these harms. But there's no doubt from dozens of peer-reviewed studies that masks cause social, psychological, and medical problems, including a constellation of maladies called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome. Yet public health officials, in violation of the first do-no-harm principle, continue recommending or mandating masks without any evidence of their effectiveness or even any pretense of cost-benefit analysis. Masks are still required in many hospitals and other institutions, despite all the data showing that COVID-19 poses virtually no risk to healthy children. The CDC continues to recommend masking all students in communities where infection rates are rising. While the WHO advises against masks for children under five and the European Union advises against them for students under 12, the CDC cruelly recommends masking everyone from age two on up. These guys will hold fast to their losing proposition no matter how many kids' lives they destroy. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, 
Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The CDC's director, Rochelle Walensky, remains determined to ignore the best research on masks, as she made clear in a recent congressional hearing. Our masking guidance doesn't really change with time, she said, when asked how the new review from Cochrane would affect the agency's policies. This is an important study, she conceded, but the Cochrane review only includes randomized clinical trials, and as you can imagine, many of the randomized clinical trials were for other respiratory viruses. It was a statement remarkable for its chutzpah, as well as its scientific incoherence. One of the worst mistakes of the CDC and others of our lavishly funded federal agencies was the failure to conduct randomized clinical trials to determine whether their policies were effective. The Cochrane Review had to rely on pandemic mask trials conducted in other countries, and now Walensky has the gall to complain that other countries didn't do enough of the research that U.S. agencies shirked? She's right that some of the trials involved other viruses but why dismiss them as irrelevant to the coronavirus? And while one can always wish for more studies to include a meta-analysis, there's no excuse to ignore the best available evidence in favor of the shoddy, crappy science that was peddled by her agency to defend its policies. You know, early in the pandemic, the CDC justified its newfound enthusiasm for masks in a press release hailing the latest science from a case study of a hair salon in Missouri. Wearing a mask prevented the spread of infection from two hairstylists to their customers, the CDC proclaimed, a preposterously sweeping conclusion to draw from a small observational study that lacked a control group and had other obvious limitations. Most of the salon's customers were never even tested for COVID. On national television, Walensky touted another study of schools in Arizona as proofs that masks dramatically reduced the spread of COVID. But the study's methodology was so clearly flawed and the results so out of line with rigorous studies that other COVID researchers dismissed it as, listen to this word, ridiculous and unreliable, so unreliable that it probably should not have been entered into the public discourse. Ouch. Instead of sponsoring or at least heeding clinical trials, the CDC kept searching for confirmation from less reliable research. It repeatedly cherry-picked observational data, crediting masks for a short-term reduction in COVID rates in some localities, while ignoring contrary data for more systematic analysis such as a study that tracked infection rates nationwide over the entire first year of the pandemic and found that neither mask mandates nor mask usage correlated with infection rates. Can anything persuade the maskaholics in the public health establishment and the public to give up their obsession? Some researchers echoing Walensky concede that the Cochrane Review is the gold standard, but argue that the clinical trials so far haven't been extensive enough to rule out the possibility that masks might do some good. 
but that vague possibility is no reason to force masks on people. A public health intervention is supposed to be based on solid evidence, not on wishful thinking. In his book, The Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates, data analyst Ian Miller devotes an entire chapter to graphs exposing the CDC's statistical malfeasance. He also prepared a graph for a previous City Journal article that's worth looking at because it's visual confirmation from nationwide data, not clinical trials, of the conclusions in the Cochrane Review. The graph tracks the results of the natural experiment that occurred across the United States in the first two years of the pandemic, when mask mandates were imposed and lifted at various times in 39 states. The black line on the graph shows the weekly rate of COVID cases in states with mask mandates that week, while the orange line showed the rate in states without mandates. The trajectories are virtually identical. And if you add up all those numbers, the cumulative rates of COVID cases are virtually identical too. So are the cumulative rates of COVID mortality? Yes, they are as well. Hundreds of us, hundreds of millions of us covered our faces in the states when we had mandates. And the result was the same as in the clinical trials analyzed by Cochrane. The masks made absolutely no difference. But those views, of course, crushed the orthodox public health. Uh, their guidelines specifically said that things like prolonged border closures, closing stores were harmful, particularly for low-income people, and shouldn't be done beyond a few weeks. You see, they will look for what matches their narrative or their agenda, and they'll issue guidelines based on that. What about the mental health impacts of all of those COVID-19 policies. Oh, no, no. That was declared dangerous misinformation and was censored on social media. Those who pushed for lockdowns were very clear that what they were recommending for COVID was going to be extremely harmful and that the harm would outweigh the benefit. They were clear because they wrote that down before. And there's nothing new in the idea that impoverishing people reduces life expectancy. Something dramatically changed their minds, and that something wasn't evidence. So we can only assume that it was pressure from vested interests. In January, a survey that was presented at the World Economic Forum found that public trust in government has plummeted since the start of the pandemic, though attendees were at a loss to explain the reasons for the decline in trust. Instead, the discussion at the panel titled Disrupting Distrust, focused on combating rogue news sources that challenged the central narrative. In July of 2020, then-President Donald Trump withdrew us from the WHO. He said their dismal performance in responding to the COVID pandemic and its ties to the CCP. Trump said the U.S. funding of approximately half a billion dollars per year would cease. In response, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden vowed, on my first day as president, I will rejoin the WHO and restore our leadership on the world stage. Biden kept that promise and took it one step further, negotiating this pandemic accord. Well, today, GOP lawmakers are attempting to revive the effort to take the U.S. out of the WHO. 
On January 12th, House Republicans introduced the No Taxpayer Funding for the World Health Organization Act, which was sponsored by 16 representatives. Representative Chip Roy, one of my favorites, lead sponsor of the bill, stated, funneling millions of taxpayer dollars to the corrupt WHO that serves the Chinese Communist Party is a slap in the face to hardworking American families who are struggling under record high inflation and to all those whose lives and livelihoods were ruined and destroyed by the COVID pandemic. The WHO praised China for their leadership at the beginning of COVID-19 and has done nothing to hold the CCP accountable for the spread of COVID-19. The pandemic accord, a spokesman for Roy told the news, is just another reason to defund the WHO. The zero draft of the accord states that national sovereignty remains a priority, but within limits. States have, in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations and the principles of international law, the sovereign right to determine and manage their approach to public health. That's what the draft declares, provided that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause damage to their peoples and other countries. So in other words, the accord states that human rights are also important, and it mandates that people living under any restrictions on the freedom of movement, such as quarantines and isolations, have to have sufficient access to medication, health services, and other necessities and rights. So in other words, Human rights now include health equity. You can't make this stuff up. In line with this concept, countries like Austria went so far as to criminalize the refusal to take the COVID vaccine. Within the United States, places like my hometown of New York City mandated vaccine passports for access to public spaces, dividing its residents into a privileged vaccinated class and a second-tier unvaccinated class. However, others see human rights not in terms of collective health, but rather as individual rights, to include such things as personal sovereignty, the ability of individuals to make their own choices, the right of people to have a voice in medical decisions that affect them, free speech and freedom of movement and assembly. Following the Second World War and the state-control ideologies of fascism and national socialism and communism, it was realized that there has to be a fundamental understanding that individuals are sovereign. I think this issue is much, 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 much broader. It's what sort of society do we want to live in? Do we believe in equality, or do we believe in a feudal system where we have a few people at the top controlling society and telling others what to do? That's the direction we're going in. The WHO, the U.S. Health and Human Services Department, and the World Bank, well, they don't care about your sovereignty or mine, but I do. I'll keep sounding the alarm. Thanks for listening to this No Restraint Podcast. I'm Joyce Kaufman. See you next time. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.